We are going to be looking tonight at church membership. I know I was a little less than enthusiastic about how interesting this topic will be this morning, but I managed to gird up the loins of my mind, and I am fired up now. It just took about six hours, but at least it happened before the sermon and not after. Can you imagine preaching a sermon on church membership, and when you're finished getting like, oh, no, no, I'm really excited. Everyone back in, back in. Um, So we're going to be looking tonight at... uh, Basically, a lot of our, our vows that we, we give and why we do so, is there a biblical rationale for doing so, uh, etc. And then um, we can say this is also part of the elder deacon training that is ongoing, uh, killing many birds, hopefully not literally, <laughs> with one stone. So uh, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. And... This, I'll start from verse 37 and to verse 41. This is after um, Peter has preached his famous Pentecost sermon. And the hearers heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Oh, let us pray. Father, please help us to uh, understand the glory of the church for which Christ died, that it may be glorious, that we would not overstep the boundaries of Scripture nor understep, but be found in line with your truth and your word and be mature in our faith. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, one of the basic uh, commonly accepted ideas in this world regarding membership is that to enjoy the benefits of something, you are usually a member. If you uh, are so inclined, and I will say that losing your credit card and having it stolen is not the worst thing in the world. Uh, The reason I say this is because uh, when you get a new credit card with a new number, all of a sudden, all of those subscriptions you have, uh, they start asking for your money again. And you go, oh, I forgot that I had a subscription to Acorn and uh, to uh, Amazon uh, Prime. And then there's a subcategory in there for the British television shows because the American television shows are just a waste of time and so on. And you realize that to have the benefits of certain things, you are a member. And what's interesting is people accept this as a basic dictum of life. Membership benefits. Costco membership, Costco benefits. You get to stress yourself out in Costco. There's the benefit. Now, 
When it comes to the church, it's funny how many people sort of kick back against the idea that church membership would be something that would be required. Can I not uh, just be a good Christian, mind my own business, show up when I want, do what I want, and so forth? And that may be a a fair uh, question. We'll have to examine that, won't we? And see whether, indeed, there are any biblical reasons to uh, affirm, as we do here, church membership. Now, it's interesting to me, as you read the Scriptures, you're not going to find uh, a discourse on church membership. It is sometimes here, sometimes there, where you piece this all together, and then you ask yourself, well, what does it actually require of us? So, in the example that I read earlier, Peter preaches a sermon, and people listen to the sermon, and they don't say, well, jolly good, now we're Christians, we'll just go home, and we will uh, live our lives to the glory of God, we well, you know, we'll, go, we'll find a good church and so on. After he's preached the sermon, after people repent and believe and are baptized, they have a number in mind of how many people were added to the church that day in Jerusalem. 3,000, and that may have been 3,000 um, heads of households or individuals including as well heads of households, it's hard to have a definite number. But they had a number, and there were about 3,000. And they were added to something. Now, as you keep on reading in Acts, you can get to chapter 5, and we read, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So again, there's this idea of adding people to the Lord. How do they know who these people are? And what does it mean to add them to the Lord? Now, a diaconate in chapter 6 is established because some of the members on the rolls of the Jerusalem church were being overlooked. In a day and age when they didn't have computers and they didn't have access to hordes of paper, it is interesting that they did have rolls where they were able to put down people's names so that they could know who needed certain care who these people were, what their needs were, even in the first century. So when Paul is writing to Timothy and he's explicating on this principle of how to help widows, he says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And this this has to do with the type of care that widows would receive. Who are those widows? How do we know who they are? How do we know who should be? They belong to a church. Now, on the negative side, there is also the uh, incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul will say that you are to remove the person from among you. You are to remove them in a way in which they were once part of that body. They are no longer part of that body because of unrepentant sin. Now, how can you be removed if you were to simply say, hey, hang on now. I'm a Christian, but I was just showing up this Sunday. I've got a few other places to go next week. I, I kind of like to find a good preacher here and there, and I go here. But Paul has this idea that this person is part of this body. They've sinned in such a way that they are removed in a public, visible manner from that body. How can you do that if that person isn't in a, some way formally attached to the body? which is to say if somebody is removed, they have to be added. Now, again, I ask the question, why can't we just say, I'm a Christian and be done with it? 
Well, because there are a number of other reasons. The first is the keys to the kingdom were given to the apostles, and these keys to the kingdom uh, are the way in which people are admitted to the kingdom, and they are also excommunicated from the kingdom. And so Peter has these keys, and these keys are then extended down through the church, and there's been great debates upon uh, to whom the keys of the kingdom are given, but certainly, as far as we understand it, it at least includes the elders, but in a certain sense, it may also include the congregation because they vote in the elders, so they share derivatively in this power that is exercised by the very fact that they vote the elders in. Now, um, if you really are so concerned, there's uh, some books I can give you on the keys to the kingdom and all the debates the Presbyterians had at the Westminster Assembly. It's fantastic reading on a Sunday night uh, with a candle burning <laughs> in a dark room. But in Matthew chapter 16, Christ says to Peter something most remarkable. He says, you are Peter And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So far, so good. But then he makes a promise. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, well, what does that mean? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, in the visible context of the church, Peter has been granted an authority to... Bind people, that is, keep them in the church, declare them to be in the church, but also to excommunicate from the church. He has the keys to the kingdom. So, as you keep on reading a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, we see this idea of discipline. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same principle, right after the context of if your brother sins against you, show him his fault. If he doesn't listen, take two or three witnesses. If he still does not listen, tell it to the church. There's a process involving the church of binding and loosing. And in the first century, they understood this. You see, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and he says, the Pharisees do what? They shut the kingdom in people's faces, neither entering themselves nor allowing others to enter. They had an inappropriate use of the keys to the kingdom. So there is this idea, and again, going back to 1 Corinthians 5, where there is admittance into the church, there is also excommunication from the church for people who are unrepentant, willful sinners who have been pleaded with over a period of time to turn from their wicked ways. Now, in the context of the church, what does it look like to admit somebody to the church? And that is where we get our five questions from. Five answers that all require you to say yes. And yet, are these questions questions that have biblical merit? Well, the first question, as you know, you have to acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God. You are not actually allowed to be a sinner only in your sight. You don't get to set the terms of whether you are a perfect or imperfect person and what your problems are. Are you a sinner in the sight of God? And if you're a sinner in the sight of God, do you deserve His displeasure rather than His pleasure? And are you without hope except 
that He is merciful towards you. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Same idea. But before that, he said, you were by nature objects of wrath. Paul says to those in Romans chapter 3, what they are by nature. There's no one who seeks after God. We've all together become worthless. In other words, you have to know yourself to be a real sinner. And that is what Luther wrote to Melanchthon once about preaching a real mercy requires Philip to be a real sinner. And then he says to Philip, let your sins be strong. In other words, when you go to God, you are not going to an imaginary God. You're not going to a God who is little in mercy, but rich in mercy. And so you have to go to a God that doesn't actually forgive small sinners, but big sinners. You are a real sinner. And what's interesting today, I think, is that in most churches, you can get away with saying, you're a sinner. In fact, let me try. You're all sinners. You see, it's not a big deal. But the specifics, the specifics is what gets us, isn't it? You're a sinner. We're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. But what specific sins mark you out in a way that you may not actually like? People, I'm sure, have said things about you specifically, and it's not always nice, is it? That maybe you have a particular problem with anger, or you have a particular problem with pride, or you're a very jealous person. That you have a problem with lust. How does that sound? A little more difficult to handle than just being a sinner. When you zero in on specific sins, that is when the guards come up. So it's not, in my mind, simply enough to say, oh, I'm a sinner, but you have to be a real sinner, somebody who confesses real sins, somebody who knows that your problem is that you are a sinner, but the fact that you're a sinner leads you to commit certain sins. But then secondly, if you are a real sinner, you are far ahead of most of the world who don't actually believe that. Most of the world do not actually believe they are real sinners. They may have problems. They may not be perfect. They may have made mistakes. They may have had an unfortunate upbringing with their uh, mother who never really loved them, and so on and so forth. And once you excuse everything away, we're basically just deterministic products of an environment that went askew. And if we could just sort out social factors, we would all be good people again. But you're a real sinner responsible for real sins. And so, there's real hope for you because there's a Savior. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of real sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Question two only can be of any value to you in light of question one. The time is fulfilled, Mark 1. And the kingdom of God is at hand. What should you do? Repent and believe the gospel. 
They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? They believed themselves to be real sinners based upon real sins against a real Savior who they put to death. That's what Peter says. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. That's what convicted them. Peter didn't say, hey, we're all sinners, but there's a Savior. He says, you did it. They were cut to the heart. They repent. They believe. They are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So Paul, in Romans chapter 8, will make this point. What does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you do what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's a beautiful simplicity to the gospel. You are a sinner. You need a Savior. And you need such a Savior that no other Savior can possibly be your Savior but the Savior. And that includes you. You cannot help the Savior. You cannot join with the Savior. The Savior is the Savior on His terms alone. And you embrace that Savior, receive that Savior, and you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's what it means to belong to the church. But once that happens, and the order is important, if we were to put question three before question two, we'd be in very big trouble. If you put sanctification before justification, you're in big trouble. Sanctification logically follows from justification. And so we ask, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. Because now that you have received Christ, you need to live for Christ. And what does that look like? It is life in the Spirit. So Paul will say, and it doesn't seem like he's making this up for debate. In Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's not an option for a Christian to be holy. It's not an option for a Christian to live in the Spirit. You must. Because if you've received Christ, you can't live any other way. If you've truly received Him freely as a gift, you can't then set Him aside and go back to living the way you did. It's impossible. So the fruit of the Spirit is those things listed in Galatians 5.22, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things there's no law. That is how you are to live. And if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, put to death again. The Christian life is is one of receiving Christ and living in Christ. But is that all there is? Because then it could actually almost, almost sound as though it's a deeply personal thing. Now, anybody who understands sanctification in the New Testament and Old Testament sense knows that sanctification really is more corporate than it actually is personal. And by that I mean a lot of your sanctification is impossible apart from others. So I think I said this on Tuesday. I don't know if it was the Bible study or the elder deacon training. I think I know who I said it to, but I'm, I'm losing my memory these days. 
What's the greatest means of sanctification that God gives you? Well, we talk of different types of means. We could talk about the Holy Spirit. We could talk about the Word of God. There's different ways we speak of means. But let's be honest. One of the greatest means of sanctification is our spouse and our children. They reveal more about you and where you are than probably anyone else in the world. And if we were a Baptist church, a lot of you would have said, Amen. (laughs) But we're not, so let's stay calm. Do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Now, when we get to the corporate, notice question four. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? In its worship. How do you support the church in its worship? Now, worship is the reason why you are brought into the church. And the only thing that we read of God seeking anywhere in the Bible, you go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, God seeks, God seeks. What does He seek? He seeks worshipers. All that God is looking for are worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. For those are the types of worshipers the Father seeks. Isn't that remarkable? That's what God is seeking. That is what God is looking for in this world. Worshippers. And you support the church in its worship. That is to say, when you come, you sing. That When you come, you listen. When you come, you encourage. When you come, you speak to people. When you come, you interact with others because you are supporting the worship of the church. And you support the congregation with the gifts that God has given to you. You are not a leech. I remember growing up and one day my dad had enough with all of us. Actually, that was quite often, but one week was bad. He just called us all a bunch of leeches. And I didn't really know what a leech was. I do now because I have leeches in my house. (laughs) But what is a leech? They suck and suck and suck and they take. And people think they can come to the church and they can suck the life out of the church. They can receive, they can receive. But if you belong to the church, you are receiving and giving. You are not simply receiving. And you're not simply giving. You are always receiving, always giving. There is not a gift that you probably don't have that could be used in the church. In other words, there's got to be something that you've got that can be used for the worship of the church. If it was left to me to do the technological stuff, there would be flames all over the place somehow. And if it was left to others to do certain things, it wouldn't work. But you look at the church and there's people with this gift, that gift, people willing to do things. It's part of being part of a body, contributing to that body. But not only in its worship, but its work. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed 
the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So this isn't just a local Corinthian issue. This is something Paul tells the churches in Galatia. There's a collection for the saints, so you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper according to your ability so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, one of the reasons church membership is important is because people are attaching themselves to a local church. They are committing themselves to the worship and work of that church. And if you were to simply say, well, I go to this church, but I'm not going to give anything, then you're going to get a pastor that costs that. And I can find you a few. You get what you pay for. You get buildings that you don't want to contribute to. Don't be surprised where you're sitting. Don't be surprised when there's no heat. Don't be surprised when all these things. There's a basic assumption for all of us that we need money to function as a church. There's missionaries who require our support. And so when we are members of a church, we are saying, I'm committed to this church to be able to support the work of this church that I believe in and trust in. But then finally, do you submit yourself in the life of this church to the actual leaders of this church? So do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So in Hebrews chapter 13, the author writes in verse 17, Obey your leaders. Well, if there's no such thing as church membership, who are your leaders? Obey your leaders. I'm inclined to say this. There is only one person who should ever have had a mega church. Jesus. Because he alone knows the name of every person in his flock. He's the only one who could do that. But to obey your leaders, they need to know who you are and you need to know who they are. There has to be a type of accountability and submit to them. It would be great to pastor a church of 4,000 people and I don't need to worry about 3,950 of them. How could I? Be wonderful. No accountability for them or for me. I actually could see the temptation of megachurches. You can come, you can go, you don't have to come, you don't have to go, you don't have to come to churches, you don't have to give, just come in a massive building, an auditorium. It's very tempting. I was tempted once by a megachurch. It was like a hotel. That's what my kids said. But there's something about verses like this. Obey your leaders and submit to them the mutual relationship between leaders and their people. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That is only possible with church membership. Now, Something a friend of mine said many years ago. He said, the most broken vow is not necessarily the marriage vow. The most broken vow is almost certainly that by which church members submit to the authority and teaching of the elders in the church. It is as solemn and serious as any vow one might take, marriage, baptism, or an oath in court. And yet, what does it mean? How many truly think about the implications? How many truly act as if the vow really meant something? 
The vows are voluntary. I didn't force Steve up here earlier. I didn't drag him. Or Macy earlier in the story. I didn't force them up here. They're voluntary vows. But once taken, they are serious and require focused commitment to a particular pattern of behavior. Yet members, sorry for how lengthy this is, but it's, I think, quite appropriate. Members feel free to speak as they wish to and about church leaders. They move from one church to church as, so some say, the Spirit leads them, and they trample their vow to submit again and again. When political parties enjoy more loyalty from their members, you have a serious problem. And don't gun for sports stars caught cheating on their wives when your own view of vows is at best selective in how they are honored. How many people really take seriously the vow to submit to their leaders? And this is how it usually goes. Everyone submits as long as it doesn't cause them any problems. Everyone's happy to submit so long as it fits in with what they want to submit to. But actually, you don't really know whether someone has taken this vow seriously until they have to submit to something that may cause a problem for them in their life, may require repentance on their part, may require them to not go through with a course of action that is going to be destructive. And then you find out that more often than not, more often than not, when people want to do something, they will do it. That's the sad reality. And you pray that the Spirit changes, and I've seen that also, praise be to God, but very often these vows are highly selective based upon how much they require of us. But we're to study also its purity and peace. And so Paul in Galatians clearly was concerned about the purity of the church because at stake was justification. And J.C. Rowell says, Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It is not the unity which pleases God. So what we're always doing in the church is we are emphasizing the purity of the church, but also the peace in that purity. Because when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, and you look at the truths in the Word of God, you have to make sure that for everything that you hold to be true, they are always governed in their application by the fruit of the Spirit, which involves peace, which involves gentleness, which involves faithfulness and kindness. Last night I had a really nice dinner. I had to drive for it, mind you. Maple Ridge played hockey, tied series 1-1, another family. And we, they wanted to talk about baptism. And I had never pushed it. They just said they want to talk about baptism. Infant baptism, by the way. Yeah, it was great because... Uh, I haven't had anyone talk to me about it for so long. I says, listen, I've convinced everyone in the church. I didn't think anyone left was left who were still Baptists, but, you know, sure, let's talk. I was a little rusty at the beginning. I started to warm up, and I think impressed even my wife was converted. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things about the nature of the truth is that the truth 
will win. The truth, when it's patiently instructed from the pulpit, will do its work. You don't need to savagely attack. You don't need to force people. You need to preach the truth. And the truth will set you free. And it will also do what it accomplished, God accomplishes it for it to do. So we are to study the church and the discipline of the church and study its purity, yes, the truth, but also its peace to do so in a way where somebody willingly comes and the light goes on, whatever it may be, and they say, that's it. While they are Christians, not they can become Christians once they have all of their I's dotted and T's crossed and they're able to say that the Trinity is the ineffable glory of the triunity of three persons equal in majesty, power, and glory, and the Father giving life to the Son and the begottenness of the... We don't ask any of that, do we? We're reasonable people. Double procession, single procession. Does anyone worry about that? I mean, it's important doctrine. Don't get me wrong, the church split over it, but the point is, what is absolutely essential to your salvation is that you are a sinner, that you trust Christ, but then in the context of the church, and that is why when we have the Lord's Supper, anyone who can answer question number one and number two is welcome to come to the Lord's Supper. And question three, of course, but they don't have to give an articulate or eloquent defense of the faith. So then what can we say in conclusion? Christ died for the church, but he died for members. He died for you and I. We are members of the church. He died for church membership. Think about that. He died for church membership because you are all growing up into maturity in his body with your various gifting and you're to use that body to bring glory to Christ just as Christ will one day bring glory to you because we will be glorified as his body as he is the head. Church membership is actually so important that Christ died for it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truth and we ask that we will not only uphold the truth but we will uphold the truth in the way that you expect us to with all of the graces and gifts that are required for the uh, loving, patient, faithful pursuit of what is right. Bless us to that end we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.